electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange today. Look behind me. The Nasdaq is the major average that's been in the green this morning, but the S&P just joined it. It just turned positive. We're up fluctuating right now, we'll call it, uh, for the S&P 500. The Nasdaq's up 58. That's two-thirds of 1%. The Dow down by a third. And here's the trend playing out underneath the surface to watch. The at-home trade is back today with Zoom up big. Uh, it's moderated to about a 4% gain. Netflix up fractionally, but an all-time high today. And retail has, meanwhile, been losing momentum. Walmart has entirely given up its earlier gains and turned negative now. And Kohl's is the worst stock in the S&P 500. We're going to have more on retail in just a bit. Now, Fed Chair Jerome Powell and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin are just wrapping up a full morning of congressional testimony. So we begin today with Steve Leisman, who is here with the headlines that all investors need to know. Steve? Kelly, thanks. Yes, both Mnuchin and Powell defending the government programs and their enactment of it with uh, really answering the critical questions about this public debate. How soon will the money get out there? Uh, Is it going to the right people? Is it enough or is more going to be needed? That's a critical question I think investors are following. Uh, Powell was asked where that Main Street lending program is, which the Fed has yet to launch. And he talked about the difficulty of the Fed getting it together. Main Street is in a class by itself, really. It's a very diverse, uh, small, medium and large companies, very different industries, with very different credit uh, needs, some of them asset based, some of them cash flow based. So it's a really complex undertaking. Powell did say that the Main Street program and the municipal bond program where the Fed is going to help the states both seem to be coming towards the end of the month. Uh, They were asked a lot of questions about whether state and local governments have enough uh, assistance and whether or not they could be a cause for the economy suffering another bout of weakness uh, because of layoffs at those levels. Uh, Mnuchin asked a critical question. Is Treasury taking enough risk with taxpayers' money to help the economy? The way these facilities work is in the facilities that don't have any credit risk, such as the PPP, I approve those without capital allocated. By definition, any facility that the Fed believes puts them at risk, I do put up capital. So by definition, that capital is at risk, and we are fully prepared to take losses in certain scenarios on that capital. I'd say there's a bit of a difference, Kelly, between Powell and Mnuchin on this. Powell definitely seems more concerned about the outlook, uh, seems more leaning towards the Congress doing more, giving the Fed more authority to do more. Uh, Mnuchin, more patient, wants to wait and see how these current programs work. He still has $259 billion appropriated by Congress for him to deploy through the Federal Reserve. Kelly? Good point. Uh, Steve, thanks very much for running us through all of that. That's Steve Leisman. Here to talk more about the testimony and what's next in Washington, Tony Fratto is founding partner of Hamilton Place Strategies and a CNBC contributor. And Libby Cantrell is head of public policy at PIMCO. Great to have you both here. And I thought it was an interesting point, Tony, that Steve just made where he said uh, the Fed chair is concerned about doing more. You've made the point that it's been two months now the Main Street lending program isn't even up and running. 
Yeah, you, you do get a sense of some frustration out there. I mean, it's it one of the, you know, see the, you see these two programs juxtaposed against each other, the, the PPP program, uh, which people felt was very chaotic and rushed out, you know, but at the same time, they literally put out into the economy something close to the entire, you know, Pentagon budget in a matter of weeks, which is really pretty impressive, imperfect as it was. You can also get the sense that the Fed is trying to be perfect with the Main Street lending program and avoid some of the pitfalls that accompanied PPP. And that perfect may, uh, you know, has an opportunity to be the enemy of the good here because we do know that there are firms out there like the Shake Shacks and others, you know, who are in that middle uh, income uh, uh, mid cap category uh, that, you know, are probably having some strains in getting in getting financing and they could use that program. It's been a while. Remember, the CARES program was passed at the end of March. Mm. Now, uh, the Fed chairman said today we're probably looking at maybe into the first couple of days of June. So there is a little bit of frustration from the senators. And we keep harping on it, Libby, because, you know, through leverage, through the banking system, this could be up to six trillion dollars into the U.S. economy and not a dollar of it has started yet. Libby, I wonder, because we're starting to hear more from companies that are concerned about what happens after you know, the eight weeks of PPP funds runs out or the three months of mortgage forbearance runs out for people or, you know, it's kind of the what happens next. Like Tony said, we got that first round of relief funds into the economy. But what happens when those run out and we're still facing, a, you know, a hurt economy? Yeah, Kelly, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think something that's important that, that Steve underscored here and, and the secretary also underscored is that they still have a lot of ammunition left, right? I mean, Congress has appropriated $450 billion to uh, the Treasury for these Fed facilities, pr pretty much giving the Fed incredibly broad authority about what they can use that money for. And, you know, still they've only been able to uh, announce and not even necessarily operationalize uh, facilities that amount to about $200 billion of, of funding. So, you know, as, as Steve said, they have $259 billion uh, left of, of kind of dry powder. So a lot that they can still do here. But as Tony pointed out, and this is sort of the, you know, anyone familiar with the Fed knows that, um, you know, this is sort of their ethos is that they are very deliberate. They are, you know, very thoughtful. And even though this is, feels like it's been forever, it's only been about, you know, eight weeks or so. Um, and so the Fed, I'm sure, thinks that they're moving as quickly as they can. But, um, but, of course, you know, the, the markets and, you know, the pandemic are not necessarily waiting. So I think the bottom yeah. line here is that there's a lot more that they can do and they may have to you know, politically be forced to do. Um, but they are they're certainly, you know, taking their time and they're trying to do things that they have never done before. I think the Main Street uh, funding program is a perfect example of that, yeah. trying to operationalize this pretty complicated you know, nuanced program and, and again, sort of an, in uncharted territory and trying to be, you know, as thoughtful and deliberate about uh, about proceeding. So, Tony, let's go back. I mean, we, this is not sort of there's two tracks here. There's what the Fed does. There's what Congress does. And we've just talked a little bit about what the Fed kind of hasn't done or still could do. What about Congress? I mean, a lot of people kind of have dismissed the the push by Senate Leader McConnell for this liability shield um, as not maybe doing enough to help the recovery, although it arguably could be make all the difference between businesses feeling like they should tentatively try to reopen and being concerned that those efforts will just be met with litigation, lawsuits. If anybody gets yeah. sick, they, of course, not only would feel terrible, but they might be held responsible. So where is this ball going in Congress? Because that priority seems very far away from what we saw uh, from Speaker Pelosi. It's definitely it's a significant concern for for businesses. Look, there are a lot of significant concerns here. The, the concerns that 
states and municipalities aren't sufficiently uh, going to be sufficiently funded to get through the rest of this year, given their ability to uh, raise money and borrow in the ways that they can do that. Businesses with the liability shield and this, uh, you know, what's going to be undoubtedly a herky-jerky uh, reopening for so many businesses. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to imagine even the businesses that do reopen their ability to open at something like previous capacity is pretty remote. They're going to be operating at 40, 50, 60 percent capacity, and it's hard to make the economics of your business work that way. So they want to see this coming. The, the, you know, the thing that drove the last, you know, what, what, whatever we call it, phase 3.5 <laughs> was money running out of the PPP program. So that sort of, you know, that uh, you know clock running down, knowing that the money was running out, and that created the political um, you know, impetus to go get more money with that uh, money still sitting out there and running, you know, running out very slowly now. It's hard to see where that happens until we see states actively laying off people and we see the reopening. If it's going too slowly and firms are making decisions, whether it's because of liability or lack of demand, that they're not uh, able to really get going. Right. I think that's going to be what we're going to need to see before phase four actually happens. Which Libby feels a little self-defeating. I mean, how likely is it, uh, you think, that we get relief for state and local governments, the municipal uh, liquidity facility? I mean, are those... How big, how urgently do you think that uh, we get those measures passed? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we believe at PIMCO that, you know, additional uh, stimulus is, is, is still a matter of when, not if. I mean, we think that there is enough political pressure, certainly from, you know, blue states, but also from some, you know, red state governors um, to increase funding. I mean, remember that states have only gotten $150 billion out of this almost $3 trillion that's been appropriated um, over the, the last, you know, four pieces of bill, four pieces of legislation. So, I, you know, I, I still think that we will see more additional funding, but to Tony's point, um, there may not be necessarily a forcing event like there was with the, you know, running out of PPP. So this may take longer, but we still think, you know, we see this in the next few weeks. So probably by, wow. you know, summertime, um, we will see Congress act. It will not be the $3 trillion bill that Speaker Pelosi has introduced, um, but it will likely include some funding for state and municipalities and probably some individual payments as well. I think there will probably be some more political pressure for Congress to do some more on the individual relief side as well. True. Yep. Or maybe helping out more with jobless benefits and so forth. Well, a couple of weeks, uh, that is an interesting time frame, maybe a little bit sooner uh, than I might have thought. Some help for state and local governments. We'll leave it there, guys. Thank you. Libby Cantrell and Tony Fratto talking through what the next phase of relief from Washington could look like. Let's get more on today's big market moves with the Nasdaq just 5% now from its all-time high. Uh, for that, we check in with Bob Bassani. Bob? And Kelly, uh, Powell and Mnuchin didn't really move the markets, but Powell reiterated the Fed's not out of ammunition. Remember, that's one of the main reasons the market keeps holding up. The market believes there is a floor uh, under the market because of what we could call the Fed put here. Uh, you see the Dow, uh, this is sort of a consolidation day, either side a positive or negative for the advanced decline line. The one consistent thing that we have seen is big cap mega cap, let's call it, tech outperformance. And again today, uh, just like they were all up yesterday, all the big names, the big five are all up. Uh, Apple and Facebook, only 3% from new highs. And that's a big reason why, as Kelly noted, NASDAQ, only 5% uh, from new highs. Uh, what's disappointing about today is no follow through on the broadening of the rally story I talked about yesterday, particularly on banks. We had regional banks. Uh, some of them were up double digits yesterday. And you see nothing here, basically giving up uh, about... 30% of the gains that they had
from yesterday or so. Uh, banks have gone nowhere for a while, so we can't get a two-day rally together. Same with energy stocks. They've been in a little bit of a range. They came off the lows at the end of March, but uh, they weren't doing much. They had a nice rally yesterday, many of them up 6 7 8%. Same story here, just sort of falling back. So you can't get rallies in, in these uh, sectors like energy and banks. Uh, the broadening we saw yesterday, not really much in evidence today. Let's call it a consolidation day. Guys, back to you. All right, Bob, thanks very much. Uh, the markets, like he said, have been unable to follow up for the most part on yesterday's massive rally, but they're trying. The S&P is fighting into positive territory right now. As of yesterday's close, more than 80 percent of the stocks in the S&P 500 were trading above their 50-day moving averages, which is the highest reading since January, in fact. Uh, shows you kind of how sentiment is changing. For more, I'm joined by Julia Coronado. She is the founder of Macro Policy Perspectives, and David Leibovitz is global market strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Uh, David, I'll just start with you. I mean, the fact that we're 5% off the highs on the NASDAQ. Um, tells, tells you what exactly? So I, I think it's, it's really interesting because if you had gone to sleep a year ago and woken up today, I, I think you wouldn't necessarily have any idea of the volatility that we've all been through. But I, I think that what we're seeing here in terms of tech and the outperformance of the big growers is, is really twofold. Um, the first thing is that they do have a bit of a tailwind given everything that's going on. You know, more people working from home, more people doing things remotely in general. Uh, that is very supportive for the tech sector and the big growers broadly. But I, I think that the more important point, and, and we get asked this question by clients quite often, is think about the world that we're going to go back into when all of this is over. We're going to be right back in a world of 2% growth, structurally low inflation, very low interest rates. And, and that's the environment that got tech to where it is today over the past 10 years. And so I, I think what you're seeing is that there's both a a short-term case and a long-term case that can be made for the continued outperformance of the big growers. And I think that's why you see the NASDAQ so close to, uh, to, to its peak earlier this year. You know, it's an interesting point, Julia, and it makes me wonder about uh, two of those preconditions, low inflation and low rates. I mean, again, yesterday we had some of the Fed futures going negative. Um, yeah. Where are you on the, on the prospect, possibility, desirability of negative rates? So the negative rate uh, debate is not an active one at the Fed. They've been very clear about that, that they see this as a weak tool um, with a lot of logistical complications given the structure of our financial system. So when you're looking to stimulate the economy, you want to use the most powerful tools on your tool shelf. That continues to be, in their mind, um, bond purchases, mortgage and treasuries, as well as the credit programs that they're focused on ramping up. And as you said, they've got a lot of work uh, to get those fully functional and, and pumping credit into the real economy. So that is definitely their area of focus. Negative rates is a theoretical debate at this uh, point and, and not the best tool for the U.S. economy. What do you make of the market signals then? Should we meet, read these as merely technical? Should we read it as there's so much demand for treasuries, for instance, that it's possible the market could push those rates negative regardless of what the Fed does with the benchmark? I mean, that is possible. And we do know that the Fed is going to be aggressive in its purchases of, of treasuries. So, I mean, I think we know in terms of the low inflation, low rates, I definitely think that is the right characterization of the environment we're going to be in. Um, and then there is the theoretical debate. It is a debate that, you know, legitimate um, economists are having. It's, a, it's a, a policy that's been put in practice elsewhere in the world. So it's not unreasonable. It's just not front of mind for the Federal Reserve. So I think if we're 
going to go down that road, it would be at the earliest a couple of years from now. So um, I think really the, the the bigger hurdles to for the Fed right now are these credit facilities. And as your last segment discussed, actually getting money into the hands of businesses and consumers that need that bridge financing to get to the other end of this, this ramping up. I mean, I think what Powell's been very clear about is that this ramping up process is going to take quarters, years, not, uh, it's not going to be an overnight um, a V-shaped recovery by any stretch. And I think we're seeing that. They're hearing that from their business contacts. Uh, and I think that's where his focus lies. Yeah. And I, I honestly wonder, David, if the Fed really wants to lend it all. I mean, that's the, the vibe I can't help but get by some of the conditions and terms and things and, and overly cautiousness, uh, cautious way in which they're rolling this out, um, which I guess takes us back for just a final comment, if you would, on, on the different sectors. I mean, again, this program is potentially could help some publicly traded companies is neither meant to nor meant to to avoid them altogether. Um, but you said you like technology for all the reasons that everybody else in, and you well mentioned. What about healthcare, which in some ways has been hurt as much as helped uh, by coronavirus? You know, what, what about energy? What about the banks? You know, what, what would your thoughts be on some of those other parts? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think when I look at the more cyclical value sectors, so some of those you mentioned, things like energy, things like financials, I mean, those sectors tend to outperform when economic activity is accelerating and interest rates are rising. So there will come a time to position with more of a, a cyclical tilt. I, I'm not sure that it's necessarily uh, upon us right now. I, I share some of uh, Chairman Powell's concern about starting the economy back up and some of the challenges that we're going to face here over the next couple of months. But, you know, in the interim, we're, we're really showing a preference for quality. We do like tech, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, we like healthcare as well, but, but, you know, we are trying to differentiate within the healthcare universe, not only between large cap relative to small cap, that we would have a preference for large cap, but also focusing more on the pharmaceutical names and less on the medical device providers, mm -hmm. uh, as they've obviously been hit here as hospitals have been forced to basically only deal with, with COVID-related issues. And so we're really trying to balance quality and cyclicality so that we can ride through what we think will be a volatile next couple of months, yeah. but then simultaneously be in a position to ride that big market move higher as the economy comes back online and as those cyclical sectors outperform uh, the way that they have historically during during big stock right. rebounds. No, it's quite a feat uh, to pull off. <laughs> it's a very complicated <laughs> environment. David Leibovitz, Julia Coronado, thank you both today. Appreciate it. We've got yeah. a news alert on Facebook coming in. Let's get over to Julia Borston for that. Julia? Kelly, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg just announcing Facebook Shops. This is a new tool for small businesses and a big push into e-commerce. Now, the, this new tool will enable businesses to set up a storefront for free to sell products across Facebook and Instagram. Users will be able to complete a purchase on their own sites or on the Facebook platform. And Facebook's making it easy to shop from live videos. You see Facebook shares now up 2.5% at session highs. Take a look at Shopify. Those shares falling on this news. Etsy also giving up earlier gains now just up fractionally. Now, Facebook will charge a small transaction fee for purchases on its platform. But the real opportunity for Facebook here is driving ad revenue from these businesses. Now, Facebook does rely on small businesses. They are the vast majority of its 8 million advertisers, and they do deliver the majority of its ad revenue. Guys, back over to you. All right, Julia, thanks very much. Julia Borson with the Facebook News there. Shares up about 2.5% today. Coming up, it's the honey-do list. You know, 
Honey, can you please do this? Honey, can you please fix that? Uh, one of our guests says that's one of the big spending shifts uh, that's ahead for retail. He'll join us to explain why and who will benefit from this. That's next. Plus, ripe for consolidation, a look at why the COVID-19 crisis could lead to a lot of deal-making in the banking sector and who could be on the shopping list. The Exchange is back in two. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Check out shares of Walmart, which have turned negative after being up about 5% earlier after reporting its earnings. The company also said it nearly doubled online sales in the first quarter, uh, but not enough to impress investors today. My next guest says that shift from in-store to online is one of the three lasting consumer trends to watch. For more, I'm joined by Simeon Gutman. He's the retail analyst at Morgan Stanley. Simeon, is the honey-do list kind of an outdated notion, by the way? We're... <laughs> We were just having a, a whole discussion. I mean, it, you know, you still need help around. the. I'm jumping ahead, but um, talk us through what you think these lasting consumer trends are. Yeah, well, I would divide them into three. Uh, and these are these mega spending shifts that we've seen since the beginning of this, uh, of this pandemic. Uh, first, channel share shift. Um, picture this. About 16% of all U.S. retail sales is done online. Uh, that means 84% is still in store. In this short period of time, we basically have jamming that 84% into that 16% channel. That's part one. Part two is where you're referring to this honey-do list. This is the wallet share shift. Um, we're sitting at home more. We're staying at home. We're eating at home. We're working at home. Things are breaking more. <laughs> so the more we sit around, the more we reflect that we need to do things in our house. Home, average home value is around 300000 Depreciation is around $6,000 a year. This seems like a pretty reasonable activity to do while we're stuck at home. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I guess we have kind of the usual beneficiaries, and then I'll, I'll let you get into the third uh, one, which is about scale and the big getting bigger. But let's stick with the, the, this idea of, of fixing up your home for a moment. You know, Home Depot, these stocks have been some of the best performers, but are lagging a little bit in the market today. I mean, how much of this is already priced in and how much of this is going to be truly lasting? Yeah. I mean, look, I think a lot of it is priced in. I think the market in general is already looking past 2020 earnings, and they're looking towards 2021. Uh, we know this year is going to be a little bit aberrational, uh, given some of the, the trends and closures and reopenings, et cetera. Um, so right now, we're pricing in pretty good recovery in 2021. That's reasonable, right? The other side, for a pretty good sector that's had pretty good pricing, you have pretty big scale players, that makes sense. Um, that being said, there is more of a premium for these scale winners, right? The big getting bigger, you're starting to see separation. So it's somewhat in, in, that, in, the, in the good news, but I think investors seem to be taking this barbell approach. You still want to be exposed to some companies that have this uh, cyclical uh, penetration, and I think that's where Home Depot and those come into the picture. Would there be other kind of more surprising names on your list uh, that could be beneficiaries from some of these trends you've mentioned? And, and where does Walmart fall? Yeah, so look, Walmart, I would put them in the ultra-defensive camp. I mean, that was the stock-up phase of this crisis, um, and that has generally been the safe trade. They're also benefiting from the scale trend, and I think that was the theme of their earnings this quarter. 
uh, is that they're gaining new customers at a pretty rapid rate, and they manage their profitability relatively well. Um, not everyone wants to still own uh, companies that sell a lot of food. I mean, at some point, you know, we're going to switch from all the stocking up and staying at home to more of the cyclicals. But Walmart, you know, fits pretty well into that paradigm. And who else would be on your list? And, and what kind of names would you avoid going forward? Yeah, so in our list, I mean, we're, we're, we're bracing for the next couple of quarters being pretty difficult from a consumer perspective. Um, and that's, you know, once some of the stimulus wears off, some of the ins- uh, unemployment insurance wears off, in theory, we're going to be in a recession. I say in theory because some of the sales results have been pretty good so far from some of the companies in our space. The names where that we think are defensive and a little offensive, Auto Parts, uh, a name like AutoZone, um, a name that's more defensive but has good top line and margin growth, we think, is the Dollar General. Um, Walmart, as I mentioned, being barbelled on the safety side. And then looking out you know, over the next 12 months, the Home Depot and a Lowe's. Well, it's funny you mentioned AutoZone. Uh, we were just talking with Dom Chu about he's trying to change his oil and the line for AutoZone was out the blocks. I mean, is that what you're referring to? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, just I think you can carry over this honey-do list uh, to some degree to your to your car. Right. It's something that either you can do outside your house. It's something that you can do outside one of these auto parts stores. Um, but fixing up these highly depreciable assets. And as we all know, uh, our home and our car tend to be number one and two in that order of things that need to get fixed. We're not driving our cars as much at the moment. Miles driven looks like it's around down 20 to, to down 30. But during downturns, um, we typically see uh, people don't buy new cars as much. And then the, 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 the existing car sh- um, uh, fleet tends to age, and we have to spend more money on our existing cars. Yeah, well, I can tell you I've seen more car tinkering and car washing on my block in the past week uh, as the weather has improved than in all the past several months. Simeon, thanks very much. Uh, really good insights. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Simeon Gutman is the retail analyst at Morgan Stanley. Uh, speaking of Walmart, don't miss an exclusive interview with Walmart CEO Doug McMillan on Squawk Box tomorrow morning. That'll be around 8 a.m. Eastern time. Coming up here, a second day of some positive news in the airline sector. Yeah, positive. Uh, the news and the market reaction is ahead. Plus, KBW advised on 10 of the 15 largest bank mergers this year. Might not even have heard of them, uh, but they see an acceleration of consolidation in the sector. The CEO will join us, uh, talk about why, where these mergers have been so far, and where more may be coming. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Welcome back. Let's get the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for our headlines. Sue? 
Thank you, Kelly. Good afternoon, everybody. Here's what we know at this hour. There's a new study that shows that at the height of the coronavirus restrictions in early April, daily global carbon emissions dropped roughly 17 percent from last year. Scientists say it could be the largest worldwide drop in recorded history. At least 270 New York City public employees have died from the coronavirus, including health and EMS workers. Mayor Bill de Blasio wants to give their families death benefits, usually reserved for first responders who die in the line of duty. And the worst of the coronavirus-related layoffs for small businesses may be over, according to data from payroll provider Gusto. After spiking more than 1,000 percent in March, layoffs leveled off last month. You can go to CNBC.com for more on the pandemic's impact on small businesses. You're up to date, Kelly. I'll see you next hour. Back to you. All right, Sue. See you then. Thanks so much. Coming up, as more states reopen, contact tracing could help fend off major new COVID outbreaks. We're going to speak with one company who's launching a new app to help do just that. Plus, venture capital is still piling money into one area of tech that's expected to be worth $500 billion in five years. We've got the latest on that. And coming up on Power Lunch, don't miss an exclusive interview with the Kohl's CEO on its results and the outlook for the consumer. The stock is lagging today. We'll talk more about it. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on these markets with the S&P now up by a couple of points. Uh, see how his uh, car's oil change is doing, too. Dominic Chu joins us. Oh, <laughs> yes, my oil change for sure. Take a look at what's going on so far with the S&P 500 sitting right around that 2950 mark. That's an area of slowing momentum for the market overall. The Dow Industrials off about one third of one percent drag down by Home Depot. Now, just want to show you that slowing momentum in the S&P 500 on a year to day basis. As you take a look at some of those charts there. If we can bring it up or not, we can just ditch that. Take a look what's happening with these sectors overall. Discretionary, technology, communication services, the real outperformers there. Meanwhile, what you've got here are utilities, financials, and energy underperforming. Remember, energy and financials were some of the real outperformers yesterday. And then some of the stocks to watch today. Check out what's happening with a couple of analyst upgrades, really driving things with Peloton shares, also Beyond Meat shares as well, and then Advanced Auto Parts also there uh, on earnings and much better same-store sales. So watch those particular stocks on the move today. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. So artful, uh, as always. Tom, thanks very much. <laughs> you got it. Let's check in on the banks. It's been a rougher go for them this year as low rates and a lack of consumer spending weigh pretty heavily on the sector. Many of the biggest names are down more than 30 percent over the past three months, as you can see there. My next guest says that's going to accelerate consolidation in the space. For more on the path forward for the financials. Let's welcome in Tom Michaud. He's the president and CEO of KBW, a steeple company and a leading provider of research on U.S. banks. They also advise on 10 of the 15 biggest bank mergers of 2019. Tom, it's great to see you. Welcome. And I mean, how big are we talking? Get me excited. How, what, what kind of consolidation are we talking about? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on and good afternoon. Uh, first of all, we're going to have to get through this period of understanding what's happening in the economy and with stock prices where they are right at this moment, I don't think that this is a big moment in consolidation. But I do think that once we get past this economic shutdown and get some orderliness back into the economy and back into the bank stock market, uh, our view is that the, the pressures that were there that were causing uh, about 5% of the industry to consolidate last year are going to come back even stronger. And I think it really comes down to a couple of things. One is the bigger banks have established themselves generally as more profitable than the smaller banks. Uh, the second thing is 
the digital adoption during this wave, I heard one of the conversations earlier about tech enablement. the, The industry's done a great job of connecting itself digitally to their customers during the shutdown. And I think that's only going to accelerate the investment in those type of services, which I think is going to lead to the scale argument, which will lead to more consolidation. You know, sort of talking with some experts on on this, it seems like the most likely uh, acquirers could be PNC Bank, which is a pretty high valuation right now. Uh, USB has a lot of cash. I mean, you know, maybe they could go after one of the kind of bigger regional banks, something like that. Um, What would it take for us to see uh, one of them maybe approach a Goldman or approach a Morgan, uh, you know, do something a little bit more, um, the kind of thing we might have thought was was unthinkable just a a couple of years ago? So I'll take a couple of things in there. First of all, PNC did sell uh, their ownership in BlackRock last week, and they did come out and say that strategic opportunities is one of the things they're thinking about. So that's really out in in the public. I think the way to look at this is this this sell-off in the industry has uh, caused winners and losers from a stock valuation standpoint. And I think it's pretty simple. Look at the stocks that have better price to tangible book valuations and those that don't. You'll get a kind of idea of who can be a buyer in this market. And I think that that's where you'll look for a signal. The right. other thing, you yeah, go ahead. Big, the bigger banks is that the whole thing, like you mentioned with Goldman, it's the, the bigger bank consolidation happens much more slowly. Truist was an outlier, but the universal banking model works and Goldman can bring great investment banking capabilities to a combination. So, uh, so I think you'll probably see more banks looking to invest in opportunities to do more with their customers via investment bank. I don't but think that would be. Correct. That's interesting what you said, that Goldman could bring, you know, that investment banking relationship in in consolidation. So, again, these these are the names that have the lower valuations, the Goldmans, the Morgans. Correct. I mean, for the environment just being what it is, it makes it hard to see them as the acquirer. It's just also hard to imagine them being acquired and those names going away. So I'll go back to where we started, which is we're talking about what happens on the back end of this. First of all, I I would be surprised. Typically, recessions are not periods where you see a lot of healthy bank M&A. And so I don't think that's going to happen now. I think what we're talking about, the forces that are aligning itself, what happens on the back end of this. Um, And then another thing I'll say is that we think the operating environment at the end of this is going to include very low interest rates, which means banks that are more spread dependent going to have a little more pressure on them to think about combining with banks that have more fee income. And who knows, go, you know, the banks could say that we saw more merger of equal type transactions last year. You could see more of those things, those type of mergers as we roll out of this recession. So final question to you then is where does fintech fall in all of this? You know, we're still talking about a lot of these banks as if it's 10 or 15 years ago, but you have a lot of new players with a lot of new technology on the scene. How, how does that affect the kinds of deals that we might see happen? It's fascinating. I think fintech is critical. I think tech is everywhere. Also, too, I like to think about the arguments we aren't hearing. We aren't hearing during this crisis that there was a problem accessing your bank. I had a problem getting cash. It's because you can do so much digitally. And it tells you how far the industry's already come with this whole digital enablement. So fintech is here. I believe some of the best fintech companies in the world are the American banks. And if you look at the biggest ones, they have fantastic offerings. So I think there's going to be more consolidations. I think banks are going to be looking to be buyers of fintech companies. And don't forget, there have been a lot of fintech companies who want to be banks because of the great stability deposits offer. Exactly. So I look there to be a lot of action 
between the two sectors going forward. We, we've been investing a lot in research and capabilities in that area because we see it happening and we think it's going to happen more. All right. I, I always wish you could give me a specific, like, Kelly, we, we hear this deal is going to happen. I know you can't do that, but I wish well, you could. I'm sure you're well aware of the reasons why I could. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, Tom, thanks very much for your insights. Thank you, sir. Have a great afternoon. Thank Tom you. Tom Michaud is the president and CEO of KBW. Still ahead, medical experts agree that contract tracing is an important part of stopping the renewed spread of coronavirus. But there are lots of privacy concerns about this. We're going to get a look at a contact tracing app that promises to be privacy first coming up. Also, telemedicine is one of the few sectors that is growing during this pandemic, and one company just pulled in a huge round of funding. We have that story next here on The Exchange. Welcome back. The digital health sector is expected to be worth more than $500 billion by 2025. Just a few years off, it's one of the few sectors of the economy that's been growing during the pandemic. And as a result of it, CMC.com's Chrissy Farr is here with some exclusive details on one company getting a huge uh, new funding round. Chrissy? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, the latest uh, company to raise financing in my space is Armada Health. Um, they just pulled in about $57 million, and they used that fund um, to buy a company, Fizera. So this is some news that almost seems normal in the midst of a, a pandemic and also a recession. But digital health is doing extremely well right now, and Umada is not the only company raising money. Um, they tell me and others that investors are calling them up, constantly wanting to put uh, their dollars into the space because People don't want to go to a, a doctor on site uh, right now. They, they want to use their smartphone, um, their laptop uh, to seek medical care. And, and these problems aren't going away just because we have a pandemic. We have a couple of big uh, publicly traded companies. Teladoc uh, especially comes to mind. You know, there's companies, ZocDoc, who are trying to now incorporate more visits into their technology and so forth. Um, how is the landscape kind of shaking out? Is it still a lot of small players? Do you think that we might see a lot of consolidation um, here? Because, again, you're absolutely right. A lot of people are in using uh, this for the first time amid coronavirus. Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of these companies actually got their start more than 10 years ago, and growth was fairly slow just because healthcare is one of those sectors that is extremely challenging to break into. For a long time, some of these companies weren't actually able to get reimbursed um, for these medical visits that were online. That has drastically started to change because the federal government has just loosened up all the rules and regulations around telemedicine and basically told doctors that they can start to get paid on par with an in-person visit. So I'm actually expecting to see a lot of M&A. I'm expecting to see some IPOs because these are companies that have been around since 2009, 2010, and their investors are probably getting itchy at this point. They would like to see a return on, on their money. And now actually seems like a decent time for some of these companies to raise those final big rounds and then potentially even go out later in the year. And the ones that are in the public markets already, One Medical and the Bongo, are doing very well and have continued to grow during the pandemic. Um, so I think you'll see a lot of activity around digital health in the next year or two. Yeah, that's interesting what you said that it was. So they had to basically what were you saying about the reimbursement that this technology might have existed, but unless they were going to you know, the government was going to let them get paid for. It, I mean, it sounds like that was probably a pretty big rule change. 
Yeah, that was one of the big rule changes. Um, another one was just allowing doctors to be able to treat across state lines. Previously, they had to go and get licensed, and that was a process that could take a few years, cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so that has also been relaxed. Um, that, the reimbursement, and then also just the, the fact that consumers are now starting to use these tools. And from what I'm hearing, they're really liking it. I mean, once you've had that exposure and, and you're able to see a doc on your smartphone, um, if there's if it works and and you know you're told that you can get a prescription um, right there from home or you can get the treatment that you need, why go into the doctor's office and yeah. wait um, in a room to see someone for an hour? Um, it's just a much more convenient experience, and now that consumers are, are starting to see it work, I think uh, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, no, I absolutely think you're right. I hear the stories all the time now of people who are so grateful they were able to get medicine without having to go through the hospital or, or through a doctor's office. Chrissy, thanks. Chrissy Farr with that breaking news for us. Uh, we can read more on CNBC.com. Coming up after months of cancellations and record low traffic, airline bookings are picking back up. Has the industry hit a pandemic turning point? We'll have the very latest on that next. Welcome back. We're continuing to see signs of life in the airline sector. Southwest says new bookings are now outpacing cancellations. Delta seeing an uptick in bookings as well. You can see the stocks rallying today. All this follows United announcing yesterday it'll resume flying some major routes in June. Let's bring in Phil Abo for the very latest. Phil. And Kelly, this is not surprising. We've been hearing about this in the industry over the last, I'd say, week to two weeks, that gradually the number of cancellations were coming down. The number of bookings, while certainly nowhere close to where they were last year, is gradually starting to increase. So as you take a look at Southwest, what's noteworthy is that the company put out an 8K. And in the 8K, they said bookings are now outpacing cancellations for the month of May. The load factors, that's the number of people on the plane, that's gradually starting to improve. But revenue is still going to be down 85 to 90 percent. Oh, by the way, that's an improvement compared to what the company was previously expecting. In terms of the number of people who are flying in the United States, we're still way off of where we were a year ago. And at the bottom there, you can see that there is a gradual increase over the last month. It's up to about 245,000 people who are flying. So, yeah, that's an improvement compared to May 14th or April 14th. But Total levels still down 91%. Take a look at shares of American, Delta, JetBlue, and United. And we should point out that as you look at these, all of the companies today, for the most part, are, uh, are at a Wolf uh, Research Conference where the airlines are giving an update. You've got Delta saying that it is gradually seeing an improvement uh, in bookings. You also have United saying that it expects to bring back a little bit more capacity in July than in May and June. They'll be adding more flights. Delta will, but not with bigger planes. And speaking of United... You do not want to miss this interview. This is a CNBC Squawk Box exclusive. Tomorrow morning, 8.30 a.m., we will be talking with Scott Kirby. He is the incoming CEO of the airline today. Tomorrow morning, he will be the CEO. We'll be talking to him about the state of business, where things stand, not only with United, but with air travel in the United States. And then... It's another big interview coming up on Squawk on the Street. Another exclusive interview, this one with John Pluger, CEO of Air Lease. Kelly, Air Lease is one of the major aircraft leasing companies. They have their finger on the pulse of what's happening with airlines around the world. A lot of airlines are deferring and canceling orders. We'll talk with John Pluger about that. So you do not want to miss this. This is a great morning of interviews in the aviation industry. You've got Scott Kirby on Squawk, John Pluger on Squawk on the Street. Looking forward to it. Do taxpayer? We got to go, Phil. But do we own a share of these uh, companies? Did that ever happen? Is it warrants? Where Where do we stand? Is there does taxpayer have equity in yes. these airlines? 
So we yes, benefited in this US rebound? Government, the U.S. government received warrants from almost all of the airlines because yeah. they all took some form of a, uh, uh, an aid package from yeah. the federal government. Something to keep in mind as we watch them try to fight back. Uh, that could help us out as well. Phil, thanks. Appreciate it. Phil LeBeau with the latest there. And tune in tomorrow morning for all that he just mentioned. Still ahead here, South Korea was applauded for its successful contact tracing efforts. Earlier today, Starwood Capital's Barry Sternlick said it could be a good system for everyone to adopt. I think this contact tracing is a really big deal. I mean, having the ability to know that you've been with somebody who had this and then self-quarantining yourself um, could, could be a, just a game changer. And we're going to talk to the president of Infosys, who's launching a new tracing app about what it could look like here and the privacy implications. That's right after this break. Welcome back. To date, 47 states are in the process of reopening, including Rhode Island. The state is well into phase one, which allows gatherings of no more than 10 people, outdoor dining, opened retail stores, and importantly, contact tracing. Rhode Island has been working on these tracing capabilities since April. Today, they announced a partnership with information technology firm Infosys to launch a contact tracing app. Joining me now is Ravi Kumar, president of Infosys. Ravi, it's great to have you. Welcome. Thank you, Katie. Thank you for this opportunity. So I've seen a few different mock-ups about how contact tracing could look on an iPhone, or I think Apple and Google might be kind of trying to partner on, on some efforts there. Uh, tell me about what the Infosys and Rhode Island pair-up will look like. Is this technology I'm going to experience on my phone, or how will it work? Thank you, Katie. Thank you for that opportunity. You know, as I start talking about it, I want to thank all our employees at Infosys who've been extraordinary in supporting mission-critical uh, work for our clients and uh, staying safe. Uh, in the last few years, we set up uh, six centers in the U.S., hired 15-plus thousand jobs, and Rhode Island is one of them. So we partnered with the Rhode Island State uh, in continuation of our endeavor to support the communities we work in. And, um, and uh, let me just get into the contact tracing app, which we worked in partnership with the Rhode Island government. You know, the app by itself is not enough, um, but it kind of works on four pillars as you get back to work safely and the state reopens. The first is testing. Rhode Island has some extraordinary per capita testing. The second is uh, hygiene. The third is um, mass and personal safety. And the fourth is contact tracing. So the contact tracing app in Rhode Island works in conjunction with the other three pillars. And it complements a contact tracing army, which supports it. Uh, the governor and uh, the extraordinary team of Rhode Island was uh, very particular that we keep the data anonymous. Okay. We don't collect any personal data. And we keep the privacy, the privacy considerations at the top, uh, at the top level. So how do so you balance... Sure, yeah. that anonymity. So you're saying you, you, they want it to be anonymous. You don't collect any personal data. And yet, yeah. as I understand it, people, the whole point is to know who you've been in contact with. So does it simply use yeah. kind of, is it Bluetooth? You know, what is the technology that, that knows where you've been? It's a GPS-based location geofencing application. It has uh, informational resources of the state, like testing and symptom checking and everything else. And it has a location diary, which is pretty unique. It's not been done anywhere in the world. The location diary is an opt-in for any citizen. We were very sure that because of privacy considerations, it has to be an opt-in for a user. The opt-in allows the user or a citizen of the state to access 
the last 14 days of uh, of uh, locational data, uh, which locations they have been in, and uh, how much time they have spent in each of those locations, and then if by any chance any of them gets infected and they they decide to share the data with the with the with the health professional, then it is a choice the user has. So this app has been built with uh, with uh, with the user in the middle. Yes. And the user having options to opt in and the user having options to release the data to a health professional. Understood. Which works in complement with the with the app, then takes the data and uses the data to support their contact tracing um, uh, mechanism, which is done uh, manually. So is this a free app? Technology boosters the contact tracing Is there a cost to this app and how how do people download it? And do you expect it to be used in other states? The app is completely free. We supported the government to build the app. We used our location-based uh, location-based tracking platform, which we uh, gave it to the government. The government led the effort. The governor is uh, one of the most dynamic public uh, policy makers I know of. So she led it from the front, and uh, she made sure that um, uh, you know the app is available to any citizen who wants to be safe and also wants to purposefully keep every other citizen safe in the state. Great. Great. And again, it might be a small state, but it could be a template of, uh, of what many others will experience, uh, whether using your technology or some of the other efforts that are out there. Ravi, thanks so much for joining me today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Ravi Kumar is the president of Infosys, which is launching a contact tracing app. That does it for The Exchange today. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.